Dr. Robin Brown. How are you this evening? Yeah, great. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast. It no does mean a lot to me, especially when I get someone like you on uh, as a professor in your field. Can you please give... Not my a professor yet. Oh, you're not a professor yet. Yeah, okay. it's different to the States. We, um, I'll go for associate professor next year, mm -hmm. but at the moment I'm a mere doctor. Okay. So could you give me and my listeners a bit of a rundown of what you do? Yeah. So basically... I run a lab and a full-time career researcher, but I also have a university position, so I mix my time between lecturing as well as running a research lab. And my lab is primarily interested in just understanding what it is in the brain that drives sort of aberrant forms of motivated behaviour. So initially I was focused on drug, drug addiction for my PhD and my first postdoc. And while I was doing my postdoc in the States, I was living in the deep south of the States and around a lot of morbid obesity. And, you know, I could see if I went to the cafeteria at, at work, you know, the sort of food options available, you know, soda coming in 20 fluid ounce containers and salads with more sort of fatty, sugary dressings on them than actual lettuce, you know, just the food around me. And I got thinking about you know, what this food does and how it can potentially be drug-like in, in nature. Because for me personally, I've never really had any issues with drugs or alcohol, had plenty of them, but never had any issues. But for me, when it was times of stress or anything like that, it was food that I would reach out for. So, you know, the chocolate when you're stressed out or the ice cream um, when you're feeling a bit low. And so, and then I also was thinking we have all this knowledge and information being given to us and we know how much these really um, high fat high sugar foods with all these preservatives and things in them are bad for us but we still continue to eat them and we still actually seek them out and so for me having an addiction neuroscience background I was really interested in whether or not there was the same sort of neuropathology underlying eating behavior and this this idea that potentially these high fat, high sugar foods could be impacting or interacting with our brain in a similar way to drugs of abuse. And so that started my sort of independent line of research over there in the States, in the deep south, in South Carolina. And I um, investigated this using a rat model of diet-induced obesity, which coincidentally was very similar to the humans, to what we see in humans, which is when you put an outbred which means they're sort of genetically heterogeneous, like the human population, um, strain of rats on high-fat, high-sugar diet, like basically the rat equivalent of donuts. Not all of them become obese. So just like humans, some will overeat and become obese. Some will restrain themselves, not for psychosocial reasons, because rats don't care about what they look like, but they just naturally eat to their energy requirements and maintain a normal weight quite effortlessly. And then you sort of have the range in the middle, sort of the equivalent of overweight. So they titrate out into these subpopulations. And coincidentally, it's about a third that become obese and a third that maintain normal weight and about a third that are overweight, which is essentially what we see in modern society in most countries now. Even It used to just be Western countries, but now even in developing countries where these high-fat, high-sugar junk foods are essentially omnipresent now. Um, you see similar levels of obesity, overweight and normal weight. So now that we have 
now it's actually we we say normal weight, but actually now it's more it's more normal to be obese or overweight because that's actually two thirds of the population in most countries. So then I thought, okay, how about can we see if the same addiction like um, changes? The the lab that I was in in the states was a big lab that had done some really seminal work um, into cocaine addiction. And they'd shown these synaptic plasticity changes in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people have heard of because a lot of people have heard of dopamine. And that's where a lot of the dopamine gets released in the area of the brain that's associated with anything that's rewarding. So whether that be food, um, drugs, alcohol, sex, natural, natural things that make us feel good, as well as artificial things that can interact with that circuitry in a way that's more artificial. And so we see um, this lab had shown, the professor that I was working with, Peter Colivas, had seen these synaptic, as well as others across um, sort of Europe and other parts of America, these synaptic plasticity processes um, changed in the nucleus accumbens. And so when I say synaptic plasticity processes, you might be like, what's that? Is that just like a brain changing over time? Yeah. So yeah. the really... At the, at the most fundamental level, plasticity just means change. Mm. And I know a lot of people have heard about neuroplasticity. Why do we use the word plasticity? Because plastic, do, plastic doesn't change. Yeah, but when we talk about things being plastic, mm-hmm. we think of them as moldable and okay. shapeable. Yep. So it's that kind of thing. Yep. And so plasticity is just a fancy word for change. Yep. And, so, and, synap- and synapses are part of our you know, nervous system. Mm. So our neurons end with a synapse and the two... The two, two neurons will connect together by one synapsing onto the other. So the synapse is that gap. So we see a change in those synapses. And so we call that synaptic plasticity. Soft wiring. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and legitimately that wiring underlies our memory. So mm. when we form new memories, we get synaptic plasticity in certain parts of the brain. And so with drugs you see um, synaptic plasticity changes, which are associated with the effects of the drug. And some, a lab, in, a lab in France had shown that this specific form of synaptic plasticity underlies that transition to addiction um, in so a subpopulation of rats that show more addiction-like behaviour towards cocaine. And so I wanted to see whether the rats that were obesity-prone versus the ones that stayed normal weight, we'll call them obesity-resistant, showed those same synaptic plasticity changes. What made them obese resistant? Is there something in their genes that caused that? $64 million question, Dale. That's exactly, we don't know. So that's something that I'm currently wanting to look into as well. Because you have people that, you know, they say, I eat one slice of pizza, I gain like two kilos, and then someone could eat like a whole pizza to themselves. Exactly. Um, So that comes down to metabolically, metabolic differences. Mm. So we, we can deviate onto that as well and so some of us are a bit more metabolically blessed than others mm-hmm. and so there's that when it comes to food you've sort of got the metabolic side of things and then you've got the sort of reward hedonic um, reward sensitivity side of things and also the sort of executive function which feeds into control over behavior so a lack of inhibitory control um, which for some people can be a bit less than others, depending on the rewarding question. Has that got to do with a smaller frontal lobe? Not necessarily smaller, but yeah, you're you're exactly right in the sense that it's the prefrontal cortex, mm. which is very much involved in that, exec- we call it executive function, mm-hmm. 
and the way I think about it, it's nice to think of the word executive because you think of a top level C- CEO. It's at the front. It's like the CEO of your yeah. brain, sort of organizing your thoughts and it's making like an orchestra. Exactly, and making you think about planning and consequences of your actions and things like that. So when you get people that have a lot of executive function that are high performing and they, they tend to have a lot of control planning ability and they can think about the consequences of their actions and they'll say, okay, I'm not going to do that because I can see that that's going to end up in a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. What happens in addiction and obesity and other disorders where you get deficits in inhibitory control the PFC can go offline in some way and um, all those sort of limbic areas underneath which call, sort of are in drive subcortical your, your, areas exactly drives and motivations and urges which exist for everyone they have more of a capacity to you know take over mm. and so it's nice to think about it as an interplay between that CEO part the PFC the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. And so these synaptic plasticity deficits are actually in that specific pathway between the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. And so that pathway is wired in a way that means that for people with um, addiction, they find it more difficult to, well, more responsive to say drug-associated cues. So if you walked into a bar and you were surrounded by all the sort of context and cues you know which involved in drinking so you see you know when you see a beer being poured from the tap and you see that nice frosting around the edge of the glass and you see you see the foam on the top of the beer you can smell the beer for you that might be something that you can appreciate and then just enjoy for some people that can can precipitate an uncontrollable urge to consume that beer even if prior to walking into that bar They've said, okay, I'm not going to drink today. But that even the context of the bar itself can precipitate that urge, um, which makes it really difficult. So then it's like you're really having to exercise that prefrontal cortex. And some argue that there's only a finite amount of that control that you can exert as well. And that feeds into food and eating behaviour as well. And so the idea is that for some people, those... We're getting, I'm getting a bit off topic. Let's get let's get back to finishing that addiction thing. So essentially, what I found in the obesity prone rats is that they had that same deficit in that synaptic pathway between the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens, and they also showed when I put them in sort of a behavioural um, paradigm where we can test their motivation and sort of addiction-like behaviour by they press levers for the highly palatable food. Um, once we take it away from them in the home cage, they showed addiction-like behaviour because we sort of... And when we diagnose addiction or substance use disorder, we have diagnostic criteria. So we sort of made the rat versions of those and tested them. And so this was sort of the first neurophysical evidence that there's a similar sort of neural underpinnings of what we would say addictive-like behaviour towards food and drug addiction. So since then, um, when I returned from my postdoctoral training and started my own lab, that's kind of been what at the forefront of what we do in my lab. And what we do is sort of we have an arm of research which is looking into those parallels between addiction and food, addiction towards drugs and, and sort of this addictive behaviour towards food, which I like to call 
compulsive eating because I think we have this term food addiction, which lay people really readily accept because a lot of them identify with that because they can feel that loss of control over their eating and it feels like an addiction. But in sort of medical and academic um, research areas, it's a very sort of polarizing and contentious term. And say you get people in the obesity field and they don't like, they go, oh, they sort of poo-poo at the idea of the of food addiction, even though we have this nice evidence, which really both in people and in um, animal models, which really, I believe now we have a strong case to say that for some people, it really is like an addictive disorder. But so I've started calling it compulsive eating because I think that takes that sort of it also takes a bit of a stigma out of it because even now for people with drug addiction we don't say we tend to avoid drug addiction we tend to say substance use disorder or someone has a problem with alcohol alcohol use disorder it's like drugs a dirty word or something it's like addiction is a dirty word because mm-hmm. in the past um you know the word addict is very sort of stigmatizing mm-hmm. and doesn't make that person feel good about themselves so we now don't say we say a person with a drug problem. We don't say an addict. Or what does that say about the word AA then? Because that's alcohol. Is that Alcoholics Anonymous? I yeah. mean, does that mean they should change alcoholics to substance anonymous? People. So now you would say someone with alcoholism. So it's about putting the person first as opposed to labeling them as a something. Mm. They're a person with something. Mm. It's like now when you say you say someone with autism as opposed to autistic, or you say someone with obesity, you don't say an obese person. Mm. And look, some people might say it's political correctness gone mad blah 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 but it's not really hard to change the wording and it's going to make people feel better i wouldn't um, say that's politically incorrect madness I'd, I'd say there's a lot more pc madness out there than that yeah <laughs> agreed yeah. and it doesn't take much to make that change mm. so so moving away from labels and thinking of the individual front and center Mm. and this is just one aspect of them and it doesn't label them and just make them only that thing and so um for that reason i like to call it compulsive eating and so we study um different forms of compulsive eating and also have some drug addiction work that we're doing and and now we're moving into the drivers of eating behavior so you know we're looking at these um addiction like changes but now not only are we trying to come up with new treatments that help but also understanding, well, what is it that actually drives that behaviour in people? And so I have this um, arm of research looking at sort of emotional stress-related eating because we see that there's a big sex difference there. So we see that for women in particular, not some men obviously suffer from this as well, but we see for, for women in particular... Statistically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stress and emotion often drive the eating behaviour. I can imagine that. So... So it's a different experience. And that's why, a lot. you know, this is all anecdata as well a bit, but when you speak to say, if it, there's obviously exceptions to the rule, and I'm speaking in general terms, but say when you get a man who's just been eating too many meat pies and, and going to the, you know, going sitting down and watching the footy too much, drinking too many beers, and they've developed a big beer gut, which is actually the most unhealthy form of fat deposition, but we can talk about that a bit later. So it's really important that they get rid of that, you know, central adiposity. If that man has a sort of health scare or something that makes him rethink his choices around eating, quite often it's very, I don't want to say easy, but quite often it's very straightforward because he goes, okay, I'm just going to eat less and um, eat healthy foods and make better decisions. 
and they can lose that weight. Whereas women quite often know exactly what they need to be doing, but it's the drivers. It's 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 the sort of well, I, when I'm feeling low, when I'm feeling stressed, that's when I'm eating, and um, I know exactly what I'm meant to be doing, but that's when I have the lack of control over my behaviour. Sometimes it bothers me that it takes a really big health scare like a heart attack or a stroke to say to someone, hey, you should probably stop doing what you're doing. At the same time, I don't want to sound you know, a bit malevolent. Sometimes it can be necessary because a lot of people just won't stop until that happens. But it is sad that it takes something of that severe health consequential just to say to someone, hey, you should stop this. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, next time you may not survive. It is really, yeah, it's really interesting. So for some people, it is almost, you know, just laziness and poor food choices and kind of that sense of, well, that's what I want to do with my life until it catches up with them. But for others, they have had that the intent is and they more, do. And they more, do. Sorry, is it more of a modern culture thing this seems to be happening? No, I think we're actually more health conscious than what we used to be. I don't know what era you grew up in, but I grew up in the 80s mm-hmm. and the 80s weren't a particularly good decade for food and health consciousness it's like when preservatives were having their heyday and we're all eating margarine instead of butter and we've sort of went more processed Mm. because we had all the benefits of manufacturing modern advancement with technologies but we hadn't quite got there in terms of whole foods being better so we were we were and we were obsessed with things being low fat as well so when things are low fat in order to increase palatability they increase sugar so i i remember my and my mum is a was a mother in that era so we had she even now will not she thinks she needs to have low fat milk low fat yogurt and avoids butter she has margarine when she's trying to be healthy so to speak <laughs> um when now and look you can talk about diet nutrition forever but and everyone's got their own ideas but mm. i would say regardless of what's trendy and what's the current state of the play i would say there's an ongoing understanding that we know that the more whole food something is Mm. the better it is for you the more natural it is the more natural it is the closer it is to how it came out of the ground so to speak or from the tree the better it is for you and there's actually a bit of there's a bit of research there's some people that are particularly focused on that processing and there's some really interesting research going on um, because you would argue so I'm focused on the sort of high fat high sugar in the food that makes it palatable. So for me, because I'm all about reward and hedonics, being from a drug addiction background and thinking about the pleasure involved with the food and how that can become sort of, the seeking of that becomes maladaptive because you're seeking out that sort of hit, so to speak, from the high fat, high sugar. And we know our brains respond uniquely to high fat, high sugar, as opposed to fat alone versus sugar alone. Because if you think about it, this is a sort of really Someone mentioned this to me once and it stayed with me. In nature, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we don't have a substance. So if you if you think back, we don't have a substance that's naturally occurring, unless you can think of one, but I can't think of one, that is both high in fat and high in sugar. Not right off hand, no. You can get honey in nature and maple syrup, but, mm. you know, back in the day, in the in sort of when how we've evolved to exist with the food in our environment... From a evolutionary perspective, our brains have not evolved to deal with high fat, high sugar substances. 
Well, how we were 100,000 years ago as early Homo sapiens, we're basically the same. It, mm. f- to evolutionary change, it takes m- millions of years. Yeah. It's not something that'll happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, we can't start introducing new adaptations to our food and expect just to be used to it tomorrow. Exactly. And if you think about the the sheer, like, the change that have occurred in just the last, say, 100, 200 years, it's phenomenal. And in particular in the last 50. I like to think that we're sort of, at least we've peaked in terms of how bad it is and we're hopefully getting a bit better. But now we have this accessibility issue whereby even if you know the types of foods that you should be eating that are nourishing for your brain and your body... Um, that aren't going to make you want to eat so much more of them. There's an access issue in terms of affordability. So are you saying the combination of fat and sugar is what's addictive, not the two separately? Correct. Okay. So if you give, um, and it's the same with rats, obviously sugar alone is palatable. Mm. Um, Fat alone is palatable. But sugar and fat together, most palatable. And add a bit of salt in there as well. That's actually... Yeah, the most palatable sort of, I don't want to say addictive, but yeah, really, that's what, if we're talking about it, Mm. um, combination of macronutrients. I think the stigma of salt being really bad for us is a bit of a misdemeanor too, because I think salt is necessary for nerve health, for nervous system health. But again, within reason, I wouldn't say get like a whole jar of salt and just throw it on, you know, the little, little bits of salt. Yes, on your food. Palatability. Yeah, it, it, and that's the thing. Don't demonize. Sh- the thing is, don't demonize sugar. Don't demonize fat. Mm. Don't demonize salt. The whole idea is just to have things in moderation. Yeah, and then you're good. Mm. But if you're going to have excessive quantities of anything in life, even if you if you have too much vit- of a particular vitamin, it's bad. Yeah, actually, I have a story on that. I was um, there was a point in my life where I was eating a lot of uh, vegetables, but specifically carrots as well, and I ended up with keratinosis. My skin was yellow. Uh, it wow, was actually you must insane. Be eating a lot of I was carrots. eating a lot. I was eating a lot. Like so, how many carrots a day? Well, I didn't want to supplement my uh, vitamins, so I decided to get it a lot through food. But I wasn't really being mindful of how much food I was getting. I was just eating. I was eating a lot of meat too, but I was also eating a lot of vegetables. Um, so every meal I was having had vegetables in it. Um, I'm not too sure how much carrots I was getting. I wasn't really weighing it out. I'd just throw whatever in there. But the person that noticed it was actually a physiotherapist I was seeing. They were sort of uh, running through a massage. And then when they picked up my hand, they said, hey, your skin's a bit yellow. I thought, oh, is it? I, I didn't notice. And then I found out, you know, wow. I, I took carrots out of my diet and was gone. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I know. It's It wasn't scary just because I, I kind of knew, okay, if I take carrots out of my diet, it'll go away. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, it's not one of those things where... I'm pretty sure is it too much vitamin C that can actually be detrimental for your health? I can't remember. Well, um, too much vitamin anything, probably. Like, yeah. just depending on... I mean, you have to have a lot of it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you yeah. do need a lot of it. You do. But um, yeah, there's some literature coming out. I think I've read... I've seen it. I can't mm. recall the details of it about... I think it was vitamin C in particular. But I will say that... So I work at Melbourne University and was at the Florey Neuroscience Institute and still work heavily with people at the Florey and have an honorary appointment there. And there's some work being done at the Florey at the moment, really interesting work around mega doses of vitamin C mm. and help being helpful for um, people in ICU with COVID and then also sepsis. With your work, would you work pretty closely with dietitians and stuff like that? Yeah, so we, we sort of have, I have collaborative links with 
um, dietitians mm. as well as psychologists. And so we always try and so we formed a an addictive and compulsive eating research organization just just to sort of come together because you do feel a bit maligned in the sense that so for example if I go to an obesity conference I feel a bit on the outer because I'm really thinking more about the eating behavior yeah and um the addictive qualities of the food whereas at an obesity conference they're very much focused on obesity and metabolic disease and the end point it's almost like the end point of that eating is the obesity and they and they want to treat that but they're not thinking about what got that person there to begin with and then if I go to an eating disorders meeting then I feel a bit on the outer as well because people in the eating disorders field have very strict ideas about how they think disordered eating works and you know obesity is a dirty word in the eating disorders field um, because they understand there's a much more focus on the idea that if you restrict you are actually if you engage in restrictive eating, you're actually perpetuating disordered eating symptoms. So they very much encourage the dogma is to accept yourself in your larger body because if that person does that, the idea is that they hopefully will then not engage in restrictive eating. And so that cycle of restrict, binge, restrict, binge will hopefully go away. And so if you can, Im- if you can imagine the eating disorders field and the obesity field, they're kind of at odds with each other yeah. because the obesity field is all about um, weight loss interventions, mm-hmm. um, which in of itself are restrictive, and then that is begetting eating disorder symptoms. So we have these two silos working here, both so related, but there's a real clash. <laughs> or I will say, I won't say clash. I'll say attention. Yeah. Attention between those two goals. Um, so you have people here go, well, what good is trying to get that person happy with their larger body if they're morbidly obese and might die within five years from their comorbidities? And these people go, well, we're just treating the disordered eating, so this is what we care about. You know, so there needs to be some crosstalk there. And this is something that I'm just becoming more aware of coming as my background being in in addiction and then moving into eating behaviour, obesity first and now disordered eating. I'm sort of seeing how all these different fields, there's pros and cons to each of them. And hopefully at some point we can work together. But at the moment, the people that I... You know, we, we form this organisation because we're sort of all people on the same page but in different areas. So the psycho- there's, we have people that are in psychology, people that are in um, nutrition and then people like me that are neuroscientists and we sort of all, you know, try and disseminate our work and we have a Twitter handle so we try and, you know, put out papers and stuff that we think our followers might be interested in. So it's A-C-E-R-O, A-C-E-R-O if people want to follow yeah. for that kind of stuff. Please yeah. do. Something that I find interesting about addiction is, is it the substance you first come across that predispositions you for the addiction? So let's just say a person is going through some emotional turmoil and they come across food first before drugs. So they end up becoming addicted to food instead of drugs. And if they find drugs first, they'll end up find, uh, being addicted to drugs instead of food. Is that the way it works? Or is there something in their DNA that will make them more likely to be addicted to food than drugs, vice versa? That's a really interesting question, Dale. And there's a lot of different factors at play there. If you speak to most people with lived experience what you find is that there's usually a particular vice that they have whether it be a particular drug or you know food 
and or gambling or what have you. Mm-hmm. And it and it's usually a really salient experience that they've had with the substance or I will say the reinforcer because something's positively reinforcing um, and it can be a behaviour that has set them on that path. But I will say, so there is a very small subpopulation of people that across this spectrum of, say, issues with compulsive forms of whatever it is, drug taking, eating, you know, some sort of behavioural addiction like gambling or gaming or maybe compulsive phone use. Porn addictions. Porn, yeah. And there's a subset, very small subset, that seem to just have issues with everything. Like whatever it is, if you give it to them... Um, I had a friend growing up, you know, if you gave him a drug, he'd take too much of it. If he, if you gave him alcohol, he'd drink too much. But he also had problems controlling his eating. So, you know, we don't like saying, I know people, there's that lay term of addictive personality, which is a bit of a misnomer. But at the same time, there's definitely predetermined traits in people that make them potentially say more impulsive, more sensation seeking. And so if you have those traits, you're much more likely to engage in rewarding you know behaviors that you find rewarding without thinking first like they're just like yeah just do it do swipe, it again swipe exactly um without having that prefrontal mm. cortex sort of top-down control over the behavior and so there's those people but there's they're quite rare and we say the mass they exist but the vast majority will have one vice that they have their problem with but the interesting thing is like you said it's like if you came across and we don't know the, the answer to your questions we don't know if that person came across a different drug at a different stage. I think a lot of it is context dependent. So, um, and a lot of it might be involved with how you've been, like a lot of early life stuff. So if you've been parented in a way such that when you are upset, your parents have said, here, have a cookie. Oh, you're upset. Here, have a cookie to make you feel better. Here, have some ice cream to make you feel better. Um, Then that association of comfort with food can move you know grow with you into adulthood and then when um you know you get stressed that's what you reach for and then if that you know behavior becomes a bit compulsive then that's you know that um eventuates into some sort of disordered eating problem with the case of drugs a lot of it is about um access and exposure like some people are exposed to you know drugs at a really early age in life some people don't touch drugs till they're 30 some people never touch drugs and there's real cultural factors there you know who you grew up with your peer group um what's around you I had a friend that I did my PhD with and she grew up in regional Victoria and when she was 11 12 13 um everyone around her was shooting up heroin you know that's because of her context. Like that's that was her environment at the mm-hmm. time. She managed to escape, but she had a close friend of hers um, die, and that was a big, big one for her. And that sort of set her on a trajectory of obviously not wanting to go near those substances. But so a big part of it is your environment. Mm-hmm. So with any, if we think about any sort of disease or disorder that you could suffer from, it is an interaction between your genes your genetic sort of predisposition, which is sort of what you're referring to in that question, and your environment. And your environment is always changing, but your genes are quite stable. But we also have epigenetics, which is the regulation of, of how those genes are expressed. And there's, that's a whole field of study. And so your epigenetic, so it's how your environment influences your genes mm. or influences the expression of your genes. Um, and that's becoming increasingly known that that's something we factor in as well in answer to your question we don't know but 
um, there's definitely factors on both sides. Well, that environmental thing, that could just be, I mean, you could take that down to, what's the saying? Uh, you can take the boy out the country, but not the country out the boy, if that makes sense. So even if you change their environment, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to change. So, yeah. And that's where genes come in, yes. I suppose. But um, I will also say that we, a lot of the time when we think of genes, um, it might not be their genes. It might be the fact that if if a lot of people that have problems with drugs and food and and mental health in general, when you dig back early enough, they will have had trauma. You know, it might, and usually it might be as a child, and they might not even remember it. But that has set them on a trajectory whereby they are predisposed essentially to. Um, and by trauma, you mean abuse, or yeah, violence? It could be anything. Yeah. Yep. Witnessing trauma, even, is traumatic, and so, and it doesn't even need to be, um, you know, physical. It can be, I mean, emotional trauma, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, anything. So many things. And it's awful to think about, but so many bad things happen to people when they're young. And then, and there's a whole field of neuroscience that Gets looks at this. It's amazing the impact that that has on the developing brain. It's mind-blowing. And now, I mean, you told me you've just become a parent recently. And yeah. I have three children and, and knowing it's like the weight of responsibility as a parent, mm. knowing that you have this developing brain, that you are the guardian of for, yeah. and you're sort of you know taking them on this journey and and through life and you're trying to make sure that the, that brain development is as healthy as possible obviously you can't you know protect your kids from everything that happens to them and they need to experience hardship and mm. and and things to grow as people but in terms of trauma that would you know set them on a different type of trajectory that's the, like that that's the last thing you want as a parent for your child. I'm, um, have you, uh, read Gabo Mate? I think that's how you say his last name, Mate, maybe not. He is, he specializes in like addiction and trauma and stuff like that. He was telling a story, it's in his book. I'm trying to remember, I think these books called Scattered Mind. But in the book, he talks about how when he was, I think he was only like a couple of months old because he was born, I think during when world war ii was happening i might have been just after um because he i think his mother was jewish so during the escape his mum gave him over to another family so he could escape and he was only a couple of months old now he didn't see his mum. i can't remember the time frame it wasn't very long he was still roughly the same age but he said even that trauma of his mum giving him away that abandon oh that gosh. abandonment even yeah. though it was for the better of him he said still to this day stays with him even though he was only mm. a couple months old when it happened and he wouldn't have memory of it happening it's he, as a, he, he internalizes a, it yeah and you have a body memory of that happening mm. uh, um which might would be subconscious mm. yeah for sure it's amazing it's like we start off life as this blank canvas and everything that happens to us will uh, sorry stay with us in some way i actually I heard something recently that the whole blank canvas thing, and I kind of agree on it. I don't know if we really do. Do I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say blank because we have our genes. I mean, if we which set we which also influence that canvas. Yeah, and if we and if we also at birth know how to feed, know how to. I mean, oh, there are certain things. Behaviors. Yeah, yeah. So there's like the the paper is, it has a frame. 
if that makes Definitely. sense. Yeah, I guess that's the way it should be really put. That whole blank canvas thing, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with an entire blank slate. Well, I, it's not blank. Yeah, I think it's got. I think it's a blank slate that's framed. If that makes sense. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> no, I agree. One thing that baffles me is the human relationship to food in general. Um, especially you brought up evolution from an evolutionary aspect of things. I mean, we we developed in a time where we just ate to survive. Mm. And now we come to a time where I think, look, it's great that we have easy access to food and stuff, but maybe it's become too easy. We weren't meant to be able to just, you know, walk out the door and grab a cheeseburger. It just wasn't meant to be that way. And I think that's probably what's killing us the most is we, we just we didn't adapt to that we adapted to hunting to foraging to all these type of things i don't think we ever will adapt to it because i think it'll kill us before we ever adapt to it personally and this is where i think um governments have a long a big role to play mm. because essentially junk foods and highly processed foods they're not they're just not good for us right we can enjoy, we can enjoy, well, I know we, I know like what you were saying, food was for survival, but I would also argue we get a lot of pleasure from food and, and it can be a healthy relationship that we have and we still have pleasure in like cuisine and, um, you know, people get into gastronomy and we, we can make really beautiful food that can interact with our brains in a way that you know, when you go to a restaurant, you know, those restaurants where you're in the dark and, and crazy things like that. And you can have a really profound sensory experience with food. So I think that I like that we've evolved to enjoy food more than just for survival. And I like that we've, um, it's it's almost like an art form now. And I think that that's great. But I agree that the easy access to these really unhealthy foods and the fact that if you go, okay, I'm hungry, I need some food, I need to eat, I go to the vending machine and everything there in that vending machine for the most part is terrible for you. Um, you don't even have any options. And that's what I noticed in the States when I was living there as well. Obviously, this wouldn't happen in California because California is like a different country. But, um, you know, going through airports in Atlanta or something and you're like, okay, I just need to get dinner or a meal. And really, there just wasn't ever a healthy option. And when I say healthy, I don't even mean like super healthy. I mean just not junk food. Mm. You know, the bars, like I'm not some health nut. I mean, I love food. Um, and don't get me wrong, I do love junk food too, but I just don't want to eat too much of it because I know what it does to me. <laughs> Probably do eat too much of it. But I think we all do. I think we all do. To err is human. Exactly. <laughs> so so that is problematic. And the, the thing is though, the food companies make money if we buy more of their food. And the minute we um, add sugar or fat to something, mm. they get more sales. And we actually have food scientists that their job is to make food more palatable so that we consume it. But then they try and market it as natural or whole food or whatever. It's like you can get, you know, and vegan and gluten-free and all of these buzzwords. I don't want to say buzzwords because some people obviously legitimately need to eat gluten-free, but you know how they put it all yeah, in the yeah, packaging. Yeah, yeah. So, and and this is where I think it's really important where we get nutrition education from an early age. And you go, just because something's gluten-free doesn't mean it's healthier. But that's legitimately, I mean, you've seen the probably 
a clips of I think it was Jimmy Fallon or some talk show host interviewing Americans about oh tell me what gluten free is you know and a lot of people just don't even know and then they just go oh yeah it just means it's healthy gluten's just a protein exactly so that that's where I think education of everyone around making healthy food choices for the most part and then indulging at some other times in a way and not being brainwashed or at least manipulated by these companies that are really just they're out to make money so yeah if you have a healthy food because we all know that we should eat healthy right but if you see a food that's marketed as healthy and you think oh okay great i'm gonna eat that but it tastes delicious i'm usually a bit suspicious right yeah if something tastes too good that's when i'm like yeah hang on a second here yeah i've seen um i'm not gonna say the burger restaurant name but there's a burger restaurant that says you know healthy burgers on it Mm. and i've had them i like them and because I like them, I think to myself, hmm. exactly. <laughs> I don't exactly. know. I will say that the dietitian that I, you know, interact with in this research organization, uh, she reminds me because I'm always asked because, you know, as soon as you have children, you, th- you think a lot more about all this messaging. Yeah. And you think a lot more around, you know, setting up your kids for the best chance of life, which, you know, they talk about the first 300 days or 1,000 days, I think it is as being so critical and you know that they there's evidence now research which shows that your palate you know what you like to eat is can even be dictated by what your mother eats pure manipulation Mm. and so i always was you know i'm so cognizant of all of these things and she said and my kids will now say oh mom but we can have this because it's healthy and so Tracy, this friend and colleague who's a dietitian, said, "Oh, we don't, we we don't want to label things as healthy as unhealthy because it's like, it's too polarizing. So then your kids, and it's too nuanced as well because my kids will go, Mom, let's have a smoothie. It's healthy, but that's probably because I've said, well, a smoothie's a smoothie's better than a milkshake. So a smoothie's healthier yeah. than a milkshake. So let's have a smoothie. But obviously, if you had smoothies every day mm. um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's not great. So." want to talk about sometimes foods versus always foods and the foods that you're meant to be eating a lot of versus just sometimes and that doesn't put the label of healthy and unhealthy but my kids can't i mean i'm probably partially responsible for that but they're definitely very much oh but this is my my um because i talk, try and talk about whole foods with my mm. kids and things coming from nature because it's amazing i mean it sounds like you've still got a young baby but you'll see soon it's amazing in kids like what you see in terms of their brains when they see when they have sugar and how they react and how much imagine. they love it um even in a baby there like you would see that with um and milk milk so milk is actually i would say so the one thing that we're exposed to we we're talking about high fat high sugar would be as mammals would be the milk of our mother or you know in the case of formula fed babies that milk that is high fat and high sugar so it's really interesting that that one food stuff that we are so closely tied to as infants is the only substance from an evolutionary perspective that we've been exposed to that's high in fat and sugar. It's probably why we love it so much. There's a couple of things I can go off there. Uh, the first one is you mentioned um, how the organizations are just out to make money. And I find that really interesting because I only noticed this re- uh, recently. Uh, we went through a lockdown. Now, I found it really interesting that the only things that were open were McDonald's, KFC, fast food restaurants that we all know is bad for us. Yet those were the only things that were open and mm. stuff that was health orientated was closed. 
And to me, that just says, well, these things make us a lot of money and people are driven towards these things. Definitely. And in times of stress, which we were going through a collective trauma together, not only trauma from the pandemic, but a collective lockdown trauma being Victorian, in times of stress, we reach out for those things, those comfort things, so junk food, and then alcohol sales went through the roof. Like um, some re- a lot of research has come out showing that stress eating, disordered eating, obesity rates went, have gone up during the pandemic. Um, drug and alcohol use went up during the pandemic. The pandemic was just very unhealthy for us across the board as a society. But I think in Australia, we'll be studying ourselves for generations, really. Mm. We're like an, a living experiment. And I know that obviously, I mean, we saved lives by going into lockdown, but... You know, we won't go into all the political reasons why Victoria had to stay locked down for longer because we all know why. But it is like we'll look back and say there was nothing like that. Mm. Like, and and I will say we will be the subject of. Well, I mean, even just as children, like my children didn't have the socio to, yeah. um, social like socialising as children is so important. I had a one that started school the first year of COVID. She did five weeks of prep was loving it and then we're in lockdown I think I took her out actually oh no we were in lockdown and then we were in and out for two years and so her first two years of school which as we all know it's not just about the academic development it's the social development and all children all teenagers and my niece missed out on year 12 she didn't she spent her 18th birthday in lockdown so it's very different it's a very it was such an unusual time so yeah Definitely in times of stress, the eating, the drinking, and these companies... Look, you can't fault a company for wanting to make money, right? Because that's what they're there to do. They're there to make money. Yeah, but the people um, who are above the company who are allowed to stay open. Exactly. It's the That's why I say when governments have a role to play mm. and restrictions do work in the sense that like every time our government increases the price of cigarettes demand drops by a certain percent it works um it doesn't cure smoking it doesn't stop people it creates that little bit of an extra barrier which will mean those people will drop off that little bit more the um alcohol remember when we were young how there was lots of lots more alcohol and cigarette advertising like oh, footy and stuff that was yeah jeez. and then it just kind of disappeared you could look at old school photos of when yeah. kids blowing out a birthday cake and someone's got a cigarette right next to them <laughs> But we were a success story. So Australia, we did so well to reduce smoking rates. We had one of the best smoking rates in the world. And then we just let vaping sneak in there. And now I'm just, I know all public health and um, people are just sort of going, how did that happen? That was, that's one of our biggest sort of most regressive steps backward is how vaping is just like we had we just didn't we weren't getting young young people were not smoking i mean we were having very small like obviously there was going to some be some our smoking rates were fantastic and the ones um that were continuing to smoke were people that had already been smoking for a while and it was very uncool to smoke cigarettes we'd successfully made it like culturally unfavorable like socially unacceptable to smoke and unattractive as a as a trait and so this is this is what young people respond to right but then vaping came. And they make those nice smells, the blueberry smell, the strawberry the smell. cartridges that kind yeah. of look a bit cool. And look what's happened. For the first time in however long, nicotine use has increased in the youth. 
and it's all because of vaping. Well, I heard vaping actually increases your risk of popcorn lung compared to cigarettes. Oh. That's just something I've heard. I'm not sure if it's true. If it's not true, I apologize. But if it's just, it wouldn't surprise me if it was. The thing is as well is that we're really at the tip of the iceberg with what we know about the long-term effects of vaping because it's only been so around. Because mm. it's so new. And, and we, again, talking of living experiments, we have this generation of young people that if they continue to vape for a long time will be our first generation of people of long-term vapors and only when they're older will we know. So what It's one of those 10-year things, but yeah. it's, but it's, we don't want to risk it, right? No, I mean, I mean you could say all right, let them keep going so we can know the studies later, but then it's like, well, no. wouldn't it be better to stop it so Definitely. we I mean, it's the devil you know. Exactly. No, and we we know enough that it's not good. Mm. I was just in Singapore lately um, for a meeting and I was Man, talking... you've been everywhere. <laughs> to Singapore. And the taxi driver, I was just having a chat with the taxi driver because I was like sort of getting the lay of the land and I said, I don't see anyone vaping here. He's like, no. Illegal. Wow. They just don't... It doesn't get into the country. And so... And then if you're caught... I mean, obviously, Singapore in terms of government intervention is very high. So yeah, they just don't have vaping. And I was sort of reflecting on that. And we really let the um, – the problem is the horse is almost bolted to a degree. So we have these new restrictions in place. But because people have already s- know what it is and it's set up and it's got in here, the, the demand is there. So Singapore is in a position where the demand never got there because it never got in to begin with. Mm. So now we're chasing our tail and now we're coming up with policy, which is um, trying to – fix the problem that we allowed to to be created Ad- under our noses unfortunately addiction to food now when someone's on a drug and they get addicted to the drug they need more and more drugs as time goes on because their dopamine receptors actually go away and they shrink and stuff correct so that's the f- so when we talk about um, tolerance to a drug mm. so tolerance can occur to lots of different drugs it doesn't have to be to a drug of um, addiction and that can be a result of, and that's a result of pharmaco, we call it pharmacodynamic changes in the body, which adjust to that drug being present. And so there's a myriad of things that happen, um, and it depends on the drug in question. So the, de- the tolerance to, say, opioids will be different to the tolerance from alcohol. So there's, because they have different pharmacological targets. So, but if you're thinking about the amount of, um, yeah, so it's a pretty complicated subject, but they took tolerance out of the key diagnostic criteria for um, substance use disorder because just because you show tolerance doesn't mean that you are addicted. And you can show tolerance to a drug and not be addicted, and you can be addicted to a drug and not show tolerance because some drugs don't show, um, don't cause tolerance. It just depends on the pharmaco, um, the pharmacology of the drug. But I guess what you're saying is, so for example, if you take benzodiazepines, which some people say that's Valium and all those drugs, those anti-anxiety anti-anxiety mm. drugs that work on GABA, um, which is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter of the brain, they were an allosteric modulator of the GABA A receptor. Mm-hmm. So they cause, like the tolerance to them increases rapidly just because of the um, actions of the drug on People the receptor. People get suicidal when they come off them, don't they? Yeah, so what happened... I had a friend that was taking, like, um, 
acquaintance. I just remember he was taking them to sleep. And this is why they don't recommend benzodiazepines for sleep aids because obviously insomnia is a chronic problem and you just can't take these drugs chronically because you might start off with one, but before you know it, you need to take 50 to get the same effect, which is like a whole script. You just don't want to be doing that. Likewise with um, opioids, a lot of people so will have increasing tolerance to opioids. You get the same with alcohol. Cocaine, not so much. Methamphetamine, not so much. So it really depends on the drug in question. And then also some drugs have a really profound withdrawal, like you were just referring to then, which usually relates to tolerance as well. Like if you usually if you get increasing tolerance, there's a big withdrawal effect because sh- the tolerance is showing you that your body, when I say body, I'm including all the brain um, receptors and neurotransmitters and signaling pathways in the brain, is adapting to the presence of that drug in 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 your system and so when you take it away it can be very unpleasant but so we call that as a term um, physical dependence and that is that used to be say in the 80s what people used to think drug addiction was and then they realized that the two are separate so you can go into if you were in a car accident tomorrow and got really badly injured and you went into hospital and had to say you broke your back and all sorts of nasty things they would put you on some sort of opioid and you'd probably be on it for quite a period of time you would get tolerance you would get um physical dependence to the point where when you get um when you get better and you need to get off that drug they'll probably wean you off it they won't just take you off it cold turkey so to speak because your body has adapted that drug being in your system but because you know the minute you get home um and you're off that you go back to your normal life some people from that experience can, you know, they're probably those vulnerable subpopulation that we're talking about that, you know, whatever's happened to them in childhood, genetic predispositions, epigenetic changes, whatever, that can lead to a problem with those drugs. But for the vast majority of people, they will go back home and return to their normal life. And so that physical dependence phenomenon is not drug addiction. But I will say that depending on the drug in question, it can occur, it will occur alongside the the addiction if depending on the drug in question so an alcoholic will be sorry a person with alcoholism will be um, (laughs) gotta be careful (laughs) they will be physically dependent um because alcohol causes that you know you get the shakes if Mm. you don't get it um soon enough each day um but they also have brain changes which they're actually the most difficult part so um i have a friend with a relative who has a really severe alcohol problem and she routinely goes into rehab and so every time she goes into rehab they call it detox so if you have to detox from a drug that means that you're overcoming that physical dependence and you often get given actually um, benzodiazepines to help you through that Um, and so opioids and alcohol you have to detox and overcome the physical dependence but your brain like this is so people used to think oh I just go in and detox you know when people go into rehab yeah. I go into detox I come out and I'm okay mm. no so we used to think that that's what people did and then we realised that no people are back in rehab we call it this is why uh, addiction is called chronic a chronic relapsing disorder because it, you go through these cycles of use then abstinence usually something bad happens um, just and so the circle it's just a vicious cycle and then usually what precipitates a relapse is a stressful event um you've got you know you've got your life together or maybe something happens you break up with your partner and then you're back 
um, using. Mm. Likewise, and that's why I also see the parallels there with obesity and dieting and trying to be sort of abstain from junk foods is that people will go through relapse. Uh, it's a chronic relapsing disorder to a degree as well. In the case of obesity, you also have this metabolic adaptations, which are really, it's kind of a cruel double-edged sword with obesity because you have the brain neurochemistry, which is what I study, um, but you also have people, and I have a big a clinical collaborator that I work closely with who was the first to show this. You also have these gut hormones and peptides and signaling molecules in your body that adapt to you being obese such that when you if you're obese for long enough your body homeostatically adjusts and decides that that's your new new weight wow and so it will defend that new weight wow so so if you can imagine you're someone who has battled with eating behavior to begin with and, and maybe went through some stressful period and you put on a lot of weight or for a lot of women it's pregnancy um you can put on a lot of weight and then not only then are you trying to lose the weight that you um you're trying to change the heating behavior that led to the weight gain but when you lose the weight if you manage to lose the weight which we all know is difficult then your body will push you you know, they they if they've decided if your body's decided I'm talking about our bodies in third person now if your body's <laughs> decided that you are this is now your new weight it will home like homeostatically defend it'll fight you and mm. it will it'll push you back up mm. so the the hormone which makes us feel hungry called ghrelin those if you lose weight those ghrelin levels remain elevated so you all know the um, show the biggest loser mm-hmm. it's kind of like this cruel sadistic uh show where we but you know had really great outcomes for the people on the show but they've done follow-up studies with people that have been on the biggest loser and obviously it's a very extreme show they lose large amounts of weight very quickly very quickly and they have if you think about it all the support services around them to help them do that so they followed up the biggest loser contestants after x number of years so at first it was like a couple of years three years five years seven years and the vast majority have put on the weight and and more. and more and so that's that so we sort of call it adaptive thermogenesis that defending of that of that new set point so we call it about the set point so for anyone like if people are listening to the podcast and they're thinking okay well how do i stop that happening so the most important thing is to not feel i guess if you are already at a set point um that's higher just maybe being okay so for example i had two pregnancies and put on weight with each one and now my set point is 10 kilograms higher than what it used to be before children and when you have young children as you know you're not getting much sleep and you're stressed and the last thing you want to think about is trying to lose weight plus you're breastfeeding so you don't want to affect your milk supply for me that was a big thing especially with the twins um so i waited and then you know have had this constant sort of trying to lose weight you know put it back on blah 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 and then in the end, I'm just like, you know what? I think my body's just decided that's my new set point and I'm just going to have to be okay with that. And I think there's an element of accepting that if you're maybe 10 or 10 kilograms or eight kilograms higher than what you used to be in, say, your 20s. But if you, if you have recently put on weight and it is still fresh and that set point hasn't set in yet, my advice is to get that off as quickly as possible because it's quite what you'll find is that that weight will come off quickly because your body is defending the lower weight. So while your body is defending the lower weight, 
you're in a good place. And so the obviously the next question I know you're going to ask me is how long does it take for your body to decide that the new set point is the new set mm. point? The question is, we don't know. Um, and I'm sure it's variable, but it's really important for people who do have higher weight, higher BMI to understand that because a lot of, there's a lot of judgment, um, a lot of probably um, negative self-talk when it comes to like, why can't I lose the weight or why can't I keep it off? But you're fighting like evolutionary, evolutionarily conserved, like homeostatic adaptations, which you, in order to sort of maintain that lower weight, if you have a new set point, it takes so much cognitive reserve. Because if you think about it, people go on a diet, they lose the weight, but it goes back on. So you have this chronic relapsing cycle of weight loss and regain, weight loss and regain. So a part of that, I just want to say, give people the out and say, look, there's an element of that which you aren't in control of. And if you're trying to lose weight for medical reasons, it, it is hard for a reason. It's because your body is fighting it. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's just acknowledging that. So then it, you're, you're acknowledging to yourself that what you're doing is really hard. And I think some people, there's a lot of judgment around people with obesity. As we know, there's really nasty treatment of people in social media and on the internet in general. Even even there's stigma in the medical field of how people with larger BMI are treated. Like if you walk into the doctors, like I have a I have a, a friend, a colleague who is of Islander heritage and her whole family is large because of their their Islander quite thick set people and so they they have a lot of obesity in their family and when they go into the doctor instead of you know if you said I've got a pain in my elbow that doctor quite often will say okay well you know have you thought about losing some weight to help the pain in your elbow that's kind of the sort of treatment they get they can't yep. and the doctor is doing like they're seeing in front of them like they're trying to help that person with their health but it's like sometimes they can't get past the higher BMI and just look at you know what the person's coming to them for help they might be not asking for help around their higher bmi they're asking for help about something else and so there's a bit of that going on or there's a lot of that going on so yeah i think it's really good for people just to be aware of that in general we have a lot to do uh, a lot of work to do as society in that regard i believe well getting to the point of um the body not wanting to lose weight, I can actually see why that would be evolutionary advantage because, you know, when do we when did we evolve into quote unquote the Homo genus? It was was it like a million years ago? It might have been a million years ago, but anyway, my point is the whole fit we hunted for food and we were scavenging for food and it was a difficult time to find food. So the whole idea of actually holding on to fat stores makes sense because you don't know when you're going to find your next meal. So yeah. that that actually does make sense if you take it into an evolutionary perspective. So they call that the thrifty hypothesis, which is sort of one of the main dogmas around. So there's a lot of a lot of sort of discourse around, you know, how have we become as a society so obese, mm. you know, and and it is amazing the change that has happened, say, over the last hundred years to go from, you know, where we're really like our our life expectancy, in in particular in the States, the life expectancy has 
dropped as a result of the obesity epidemic. So I guess what is most worrying for me is that the governments, uh, they just don't seem to be doing enough about it. And there is, and what's interesting, if there's this sense of, and, you know, I've been at conferences where obesity clinicians acknowledge this and they say, look, I don't know what it is, but we have this attitude of personal responsibility when it comes to obesity that we don't have with other diseases and disorders. Like when that person is there, we have this idea of that that person should be doing something. Whereas if you have someone that comes in with a different type of illness or a broken leg, you're instantly saying, okay, let me fix that broken leg for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, okay, what should that be person be doing? Like, And so even from a, a medical treatment intervention perspective, we have a bit of that going on. But, you know, we have got some better um, pharmacological, you know, pharmacotherapies available now. You know, they're not perfect and they're not for everyone. And obviously that's only one aspect. But it would be nice to see, I would like to see more, and this obviously there's always just, it's an issue of money, right? It's an issue of money and resources. I would like to see more options for people that have struggled with their eating behaviour and want help with it. And the problem is now there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around seeking help. So you're like, oh, somehow you feel responsible, right? So you're like, well, and society tells you that. So that person who struggles with their eating behavior and has higher BMI might be like, well, I'm not going to seek help because it's my fault. So there's a bit of that. I would like to get to the treatments. I'll get to the treatments uh, soon. First, what I'd like to touch on is um, what I was getting at before when I was trying to compare uh, food and drugs. So obviously you were speaking about how in certain drugs, not all drugs, in certain drugs, over time you need more and more and more to get that same hit you're, you're getting. Is there something similar with food? So maybe at first it was one cookie and one cookie every day was okay and then that turned into two cookies that turned into three because that same dopamine hit dopamine hit required more and more. Is is there a correlation there? Yeah, I think um, and this is yeah, well it's observed in humans, right? So if you, you get people that have been eating quantities of high fat, high sugar foods for potentially a long time, then yeah, definitely they need to eat more of them. But I don't know if see so that you have this these two factors at play with with eating and that's what makes it different to drugs well there's a a number of things that make food different to drugs first of all we need food for survival we don't need drugs for survival so it's easier for a you know someone who uses heroin just needs to say i need to avoid heroin completely and i will just engage in other things if you have a problem with food it's like no i need to eat to survive so then every time you have a meal you have to make a decision about what you're going to eat now by drugs you mean obviously heroin not so much the so medication can be classed as a drug yeah i mean like drugs of abuse yeah yeah um drugs that people develop problems with Mm. their use and so that's that's problematic in itself so everyone who has a problem with eating and food has to still eat um and has to make decisions about what they're going to eat um and then the other thing is you've got satiety so satiety is a um fancy word for just meaning that feeling of fullness Mm -hmm. And so you have satiety factors. And so when you have someone who eats a large amount of food regularly, um, there's, you could argue that maybe their satiety set point was low, um, higher to begin with. So it took them more food to feel satiated. So you feel satiated. They're satiated in the sense that feeling full and feeling not hungry anymore because that's what guides us to eat, right? So 
you feel, oh, I'm really obsessed about like, and that's what I'm interested in studying, like what drives us to eat. So you will eat when you get, there's a number of reasons why you eat. Like, so when, what's the time now? 12, uh, 1. one twenty-five. So both of us are probably thinking, oh, well, I know I didn't have time for lunch before I came here. So I'm like, oh, it's lunchtime. My, yeah. my body and my brain know that it's lunchtime. And then I also think, well, to what extent is that entrained because it's lunchtime and that's when I normally eat versus actually being hungry. Yeah. Usually it's a combination of the two, right? Um, and then, you know, so that hunger is your ghrelin that's spiking and saying, come on, eat, 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 eat. And then for you or I, we would eat and then that ghrelin drops off. Um, we have all those gut peptide hormones that then get released that make us feel satiated and full. Sometimes if we've over in, we get too much of them and we feel sick. And so we have this satiety and and so people that study feeding and obesity, like the traditional feeding people study that and they study appetite and feeding. But layered onto that is the um, reward aspects of the food. And so what I'm interested in is the fact that um, and a lot of the, the modern drugs mimic the impact, uh, that mimic the actions of those satiety hormones and they make you feel full. But what's interesting is that a lot of people will eat when they feel full. Mm. And so because you're eating for other reasons, right? Is it purely ghrelin that you're eating? So what I'm trying to say is, is it ghrelin? Or let's just say um, I ate every day for a year, every day at one o'clock, one mm-hmm. o'clock, one o'clock, one o'clock. That's what time I had lunch. And then let's just say one day I pushed past one o'clock. Is it ghrelin telling me to eat right now because I'm hungry or is there a uh, component in my brain saying, hey, this guy usually eats at one o'clock. He's it's not- definitely the latter. So we call that entrainment. Mm. Um, and so, and you do, you can do that with mice and rats and they get very, um, you can see all these food anticipatory behaviours appearing. Salivation. Yeah, before the time where they know they're going to get mm. the food. And so most definitely you would be having brain and body entrainment of that meal anticipation. And so ghrelin, that's not ghrelin. Ghrelin potentially is involved in that in some way, but that's that's a different process. And so ghrelin is at its most fundamental level. And I've, look, I've got friends that are ghrelin researchers and maybe you should get them on one day because they're very interesting because we are yeah. now discovering that ghrelin does lots of different things. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the way my friend Zane would talk about it is that if you think about when you're hungry you're you have to be focused on when you're finding that food and so ghrelin yeah. actually helps with and we're thinking back to sort of caveman days and mm. okay so you're you're in negative energy balance and so your body is telling you through ghrelin that you need to restore that negative energy balance so it gives you like a hyper focus to find food exactly mm. yeah so ghrelin can help with memory um there's ghrelin receptors in the hippocampus have there ever been any studies to show people are better better at so let's just say you took a uni student that was hungry to study something and then someone who was on a full stomach to study something and compared i'm sure it's been done and i can't tell you the details of the outcomes but Mm. i would say there's a couple things at play there so if you are you would you'd want to be hungry enough that you are just peaked and and um aroused when i say aroused i don't mean sexually aroused i mean like you're that vigilant sort of system of focus so that you you can focus but then what would happen is if you got too hungry 
you would get distracted because all you can think about is food. So there'd be an element of cognitive, I think, elevation of performance, but it could definitely, it would be a U-shaped curve. You would fall off the other side of it mm. once you got to the point where you were so hungry that all you could think about is food. Because I, um, I wonder if, let's just say, what you were learning wasn't necessarily giving you that dopamine exciting hit. You know what I mean? Like what you were learning, you just kind of like, ugh, you know, and, and all you could think about was just going to get something to eat. If yes, that made sense. That, definitely. And I guess that's your brain mm. and ghrelin's part of that focusing you on restoring your negative energy balance because you're at that point, your body and brain have decided that you need to eat food. Is there a component in the brain that that's if you're actually hungry. Yeah. Then, then, then there's the food craving, which is what I study. Mm. Um, you know, obviously I'm interested in ghrelin as well, but I'm just saying like, so there's the, there's the, this finely tuned. So feeding, if you went to a sort of classic feeding lecture, they would talk about this energy balance equation and how, you know, over evolution, we have this finely tuned all species um, balance of energy in, energy out. And this is how, you know, when you go into negative energy balance, you have all these homeostatic systems in place to make you consume food so that you're neutral. And then if you're positive, and it's so perfectly regulated. Um, but, but I would argue, well, if it's so perfectly regulated, how is it so out of whack with so many of us? Mm. And how is it that so many of us eat over and above our energy requirements because some people would argue pure feeding people would argue well we just react to our energy, negative energy balance and we eat what we need so it's all within us like our body will tell us when we're full and then and then that should be all that we need and then like that's how kids come out right so i see that with my kids and this is why you should never force your kids your to finish their plate as annoying as it is when you've cooked their meal. If they're full, they're full. If they're full, they're full. And so what I always say with my kids is, if your tummy's telling you you're full, stop eating. If, let's just say you got one of those mums that are like, you will finish your plate, or parents, I don't want to be discriminative yeah. against uh, male female roles here. Let's just say one of the parents is saying, you will finish this plate, you will finish this plate. Will that create a negative trait towards food? Definitely. Well, uh, not necessarily. Oh, you mean for that child? Yeah. In terms of... Um, well, I, I think that's... I should just say it. they might grow up and they and then as adults, even if they're full, they will finish Definitely. it. So that's a huge factor. So all of these things that we were talking about earlier about things in early childhood that set up these relationships with food that are hardwired as adults, that's one of them. So one of them is rewarding with food as a child. So that's something I always avoid with my children. Like say if they're upset, I'll say, do you want to cuddle? Yeah, do you need to cuddle? Or, And so I notice my children modelling that you know, if one of the one of the kids hurts themselves, and it, and I said, "Oh, you're right," and everyone's like, "Oh, poor, poor Evie," and everyone, and so they'll go and they'll give her a cuddle, because they always model their parents right, and then they'll go and get a blanket and put it on them. And so, what I love is that my kids, in times of distress, don't seek out food. They'll create like a safe space. Yes, and they're focusing on you know comfort in a in a different way. The other one is, and oh, I can't remember who told. It's like the starving of children, starving children in Africa thing. Like, I don't know, when I was growing up, you'd have your parents saying, think of the starving children yeah. in Africa. They don't have food. And, and My partner does that, actually. Yeah, and then you're sitting there and I used to I used to finish all the food on my plate and you know what I do as an adult? I finish all the food in my plate mm. and I don't, um, I'm so um, not in tune with the satiety signals and instead I'm, conditioned 
through that experience to finish the food in my plate. So most definitely, yes. And most definitely, now that you're a new father, I would say it's um, you want to encourage your children. Because you might say, and I know that being a parent, how this, this changes, you're like, okay, oh my God, we have all these, we have this, we call it obesogenic environment, right? We have, we're surrounded. It's almost like we're in constant battle against all the drivers of weight gain in our society because we have high fat high sugar junk foods all around us they're cheap they're marketed to us in a very clever way um oh definitely they're 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 healthy foods are hard to get they're expensive junk foods are convenient they're quick you can just get them and shove them in your mouth you don't have to go and cook them from scratch all of these things we're it's like it feels like we're up against all of this right so we have to it's almost like we have to prepare our children for the best possible outcome given this given this obesogenic environment so a, a big one is just having them for, first I try and talk to them about and again you don't want them thinking too much about food in the way that they might develop an eating disorder so we definitely don't talk about I don't mention the f word to my kids food <laughs> but I talk about being healthy and well this is the problem we talk about healthy and unhealthy foods but we talk about um, nourishing your body and your brain so that you can learn at school and so you can run really fast and that your body and your brain needs um, protein and you know this is when I'm trying to get them to eat fish for example talk about salmon it's been good for your brain omega-3 fatty acids exactly and, and, good so, fats. and, and things coming from nature and vegetables and how all the different things in them and how you want to eat a rainbow of colours each day and that kind of stuff but the most important, I think the, a key one is um, when you're full, you're full. And so there's no need to force food down, though I must admit, I think vegetables form the exception for me, though after your carrot story, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> do that. But for me, I'm like, well, you just have to eat your vegetables. I'm not telling you not to eat carrots. Yeah. I'm just saying don't eat too many. Don't eat too many. I'm probably a little bit obsessive about trying to get them to eat their vegetables. But luckily, all my kids eat plenty of vegetables, though they do like everything deconstructed. In the sense that I have to have everything separate. Um, they don't like things being mixed up, especially the sauces. But I think that's pretty natural for kids. But yeah, they are. I don't want to say the blank canvas because we've talked about that um, blank canvas with a framework that we are the guardians of helping them navigate through this obesogenic environment. So we have to give them the best possible chance of that. Is there a place within the brain that's purely oh, I shouldn't say it's purely is because nothing in the brain is purely has a single response but is there a spot in the brain that derives and I'm getting somewhere with this that derives love is there and I only ask because let's just say a child is growing up and they're not really getting that loving nature from their parents so they go they try to find it somewhere else and they find it in food mm. which is which is possible you know they could find that uh a comforting nature from food is there a place in the brain that acts upon like this love place that food can also act upon if they're not received the same love and nourishment as a child from their parents interesting question so i would say that uh, i'm sort of overly simplifying the role of this neuropeptide and the researchers in this field would be horrified that I'm calling it the love hormone but oxytocin if you were to pick anything there's a um, chemical called oxytocin yeah. which most people mm. have heard of now yeah. um, that's which, what you get with like MDMA and stuff like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
And um, so there, that's the closest thing we have to that. But I will say, so if you if you give a cuddle to a child, then there's going to be lots of different things that happen in their brain. It wouldn't just be the release of oxytocin alone. It would be probably some dopamine, probably some serotonin, probably some other things. Like the brain is so incredibly complex, we can't ever narrow it down to one thing. And the other thing I will say is that, you know, this is just a bit of neuroscience 101, we know that the brain's essentially a network mm-hmm. and there's trillions of um, neurons mm-hmm. and it's about how they're all connected. And and we know now that there's different regions, like we've talked about the prefrontal cortex, we've talked about the nucleus accumbens, and the neurotransmitters, which is the chemical messages in the brain that traverse those gaps, which are the synapses. And so essentially how one brain region talks to another. Um, those neurotransmitters are the things that we talk about, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and and they, depending on where in the brain they're signaling, can have different functions. So serotonin um, signaling in the, you know, the more primitive parts of the brain um, has, is involved in vomiting. Mm. But serotonin signaling in the limbic parts of the brain is involved in mood. And so we don't ever want to sort of limit ourselves by saying this neurotransmitter does just this. Mm. Because yeah, that's why I was saying there's no yeah. specific point in the brain that does yeah. just this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, we still don't know all the answers, obviously, mm. which is why we still continue to do research. But the more we find out, the more it's always more complicated. It's always far more complicated than what we can ever, ever conceive. That's why the brain is so amazing. And that, I mean, the human body overall is just mm. incredible, really. Getting to treatments of addiction. Now, I'm, get, I'm guessing the uh, treatments for addiction towards uh, food and drugs would be very different. Well, it's interesting. So it's interesting that you say that because a big part of my research program is sort of that idea that potentially a treatment for drug addiction would also be beneficial for addiction towards food in the sense that if there is a similar change um, or adaptation in the brain that exists, um, which is common to both, then any potential intervention that might restore that sort of aberrant plasticity could be beneficial for both but the the sad reality is is that we don't have really many good pharmacotherapies for addiction which is why now at the moment if you were to go to an addiction specialist as someone with a drug or alcohol problem the best thing you can do is probably get um therapy and i mean rehab is not not some magic bullet. It really is going to a supported environment which would help you detox if you're in a drug. Which is temporary. Which is temporary and um, help you work on... um, Yourself. Yourself and... Just behaviours and stuff Exactly. And they have, you know, acute exposure therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, but it's usually if it's done in a rehab environment, when you put that person back into their own environment, that's when they can slip up. Or a lot of it is about your social... Social constructs. Yeah. Mm. So some some people would argue that so the, we're talking about the role of cues and context in precipitating relapse, and some people would go so far as to say if you say, for example, have a drug problem with a certain and that that involves using that drug with a certain group of friends, quite often in order to actually become truly abstinent and rehabilitated, um, or at least give yourself the best chance you usually have to break up with that friendship group Mm. because otherwise just 
being in that social context is enough to make your brain flip back into wanting peer pressure uh, basically yeah almost from your brain yeah yeah how do you escape yourself exactly well remove yourself and that's why they say remove yourself from temptation mm. and so um, put yourself in an environment where you're going to have the best chance getting to how do you escape yourself this is something I would like to bring up with you. I've had a, a mycologist on my podcast before, with, um, which is basically like fungus and stuff like that. Where, how do you feel with this upcoming... Well, it's not really new because it was happening a lot in the 20s and stuff like that, but then uh, you had the whole um, war on drugs, so it all, all the stuff got destroyed. So we pretty much started from scratch man, well, maybe five years ago perhaps it hasn't been very long but there has been evidence to show that stuff like psilocybin and mdma um so using that in proper settings mm. uh with a trained psychiatrist or whatever to help them through it has been shown i think it's like i think the rate is like 65 67 percent success rate um i looked i could be wrong on that but it has been shown Followed up for how long yeah yeah well that's another thing as well, well that's what i mean it's we've only looked at it for the past couple of years yeah. just because all it's the nice all yeah. the stuff in the past got destroyed with the war on drugs and that which is unfortunate i mean but i get why because at the time uh what was he uh his name escapes me now uh the psychologist back in the was it the 60s who was saying tune in drop out what was his name oh i can't his name uh, his name escapes me now but anyway um where do you sit using these type of compounds we'll say for addiction so basically the psychedelics, I will call it revolution because it really is nothing short of a revolution in mental health has been profound. I mean, there is a lot of hyperbole around them. A lot of, I think, sensationalist reporting where it's um, maybe a bit on the irresponsible side, like promising too much. But I will say psychedelics represent a um, avenue of research which has potential um, in a space where there's usually very grim possibilities. Like we haven't had big breakthroughs for mental health. And when I say mental health, I'm including mood disorders like depression, anxiety, bipolar, and substance use disorder, addictions, and uh, eating disorders. So so all of, all of those conditions, we're very, we haven't had very good options. SSRIs were obviously a big, big thing to happen back in last century but they only help a certain portion of people with depression and anxiety. And then we talk, we talk about treatment-resistant depression, which is about 30% of people. So that literally left with like non-responding to SSRIs. Some people have also really nasty side effects. Um, but, you know, they've made huge, huge, given huge benefits to a lot of people, but they haven't helped everyone. And so since then, we haven't really had anything. And in the addiction treatment field, yeah, we're scratching around for good drugs. We don't have any good... We have some approved medications, but they're not... Like, I spoke to an addiction specialist once who worked at a hospital, and I'm like, so what do you put people on? And he goes, oh, look, you know, sometimes I try some naltrexone, sometimes I try a bit of, bit of um, acamprosate. Like, there's a couple of drugs that are on the market, but they're not particularly effective. They, and it's the same with... Um, Oh, 
know, I won't tangent off into the food stuff again. Let's focus on addiction and psychedelics. And so, so really psychedelics have represented, and there are trials going on now for substance use disorder and alcohol use disorder. And by psychedelics, like we can include, um, so, I mean, there's ketamine as well, but it's mm-hmm. not technically a psychedelic. So there's a lot of... Um, well, it's the same as MDMA. I mean, it's it's technically not a psychedelic. Technic- it, yeah. I think it's classed as one, but you don't have the visual... Psych- you don't have the visuals like you would with psilocybin and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's mm. not a classic... I wouldn't say it's a classical hallucinogen yeah. in the way that um, psilocybin or LSD would be. Mm. So all of those hallucinogenic properties come about via actions on the fight a particular subtype of serotonin receptor, 5-HT2C receptor. And um, MDMA still, because MDMA, I like, I think of MDMA because it's methylene dioxide methamphetamine, right? So it is a methamphetamine. So it is a stimulant, but it all it is also psychedelic-esque in the sense that it has serotonergic properties because it inhibits the reuptake of both, of all those catecholamines. By catecholamines, I mean the neurotransmitters that are, um, amines such as dopamine, noradrenaline, and serotonin. And so it inhibits the reuptake of all of those, but particularly um, serotonin to more effect, which is why it has more serotonergic effects. And because of the, the subtype of receptor involved in the actions of hallucinogens being serotonergic, I mean, at certain doses, you can get some like hallucinogenic properties of MDMA, but it's not a classical effect of MDMA and it's not profoundly hallucinogenic in the way that the classical like psilocybin um, LSD and there's Ibogaine as well I'm not sure mm, if you've heard of Ibogaine yeah Mm. so anything I mean apart from you know that I found so the vast majority of substances that occur most of which occur from nature in nature that are hallucinogenic will cause these hallucinogenic effects via this subtype of serotonin receptor there is also a hallucinogen called, um, so it's not always, the, there's also the kappa opioid receptor, which um, a really potent hallucinogen called salvinorin A, axon. Mm. Um, so, but for the most part, let's just say, so psychedelics, so MDMA sort of sits on the, on the edge and some people call it a psychedelic, some people don't. It's technically a substituted methamphetamine. But we digress. Bottom line is, because of, as you said, the war on drugs, sort of making... Um, Timothy Leary, that's his name. <laughs> that, the LSD guy. Um, so so that that um, stymied the progress in terms of what was being done back in the day, which was a bit off the wall, like, you know, a lot of self-experimentation yeah. and things like that. But it was well-intended and it had it been allowed to progress with modern medicine, we would have got where we are now a lot sooner. But let, let's put that aside for now and say... There's a lot of studies going on now and they do show genuine promise. But what is interesting is that there's this like juxtaposition between, say, drugs that people form dependencies with and then drugs that, sorry, I won't say dependencies, um, drugs that like compulsive use of Mm -hmm. and then drugs that are um, psychoactive but don't seem to have these properties that cause people to compulsively use them and develop it, you know, to problematic use of. And and the cool thing about psychedelics, and so what happened in the past is that they got the big tar brush and just went, okay, anything that works in a sort of uh, psychoactive way that people take recreationally, we're just going to say big no-no. 
Like it's all bad, right? We know that. And like, um, you know, everyone has positions on drug policy. Mine is very much, um, you know, if people have a drug problem, it's a health problem, it's not a criminal problem. I don't like criminalization of drugs. I'm pro decriminalization, but I also understand that you need to regulate in a way that makes sense. Well, alcohol um, has been shown to be exactly. more addictive than these psychedelic drugs. Oh, well, that's what I was going to say. So psychedelics and hallucinogens in general are not abused in the same way. I won't even say abused. They're not They're not used in a way that the experience is too profound. You don't get people, someone, you don't get someone taking LSD on a Saturday. No. Waking up on Sunday. Well, on a Sunday, they're probably still tripping. But like, say, Monday or Tuesday, go, oh, gee, I want to do that again. No, or it's like it's too go even further up the chain and use DMT. It's exactly. Yeah. There was one girl I knew at school who used to take um, tabs of acid regularly with her boyfriend and watch TV, but like every night, which is pretty <laughs> strange. But for the most part, I will say they're not drugs. Like for example, the best test we can do is put a rodent in a um, in what we call a uh, Skinner box. So your operant chamber where you can press a lever to get a reward. And so if something's rewarding, or we call it reinforcing, an animal will tell us through the behavior that they like it and they want to do it again. And that's never been shown to happen with psychedelics. They just, they don't like it. So the the good thing about that, so if you're coming from a drug addiction perspective, Mm -hmm. is that they don't have the same abuse potential as the typical narcotic drugs and alcohol that people get problems with. So in that sense, they're really a different category in my mind. Um, I don't, I don't put them in the same. There's, there's not the risk. MDMA is a little bit different because it is a substitute of methamphetamine. But again, the experience is typically like quite a profound one that people have. Like you know, even if you're going out, nature um, walking, nature walking, or going out to a dance party, it's not like the next day. Like one, you've depleted all your monoamine, so you you generally feel flat and you don't the last thing you want to do is take it again because mm. it's depleted all your serotonin right you get all this exactly. serotonin in your brain and then when it washes it all out you're basically i've heard people can become a little more aggressive after they've after that's gone if that makes sense like once the once the mdma is wore off and it's flooded all that serotonin out of your brain you the the more negativity tends to come up a bit more yeah and look people that are if you're chronically using mdma in like i don't mean like every day because i mean you don't get people that people well that i knew when back in the day would never take mdma daily it's like a weekly party thing yeah. it's a party drug i would put it in the party drug category um if you're taking it regularly like weekly when you're going out partying um you can like over time like we talk about plasticity you can get plasticity because you're hitting you're having a good hit like you're your serotonin um, neurons are getting depleted quite acutely with quite a large dose. And um, it takes a while for your body to build up, build it up again, which is like, that's the whole come down thing. Mm. That's the whole couple of days where you feel flat. You don't feel much joy in life. And, you know, obviously you've probably been up all night as well. So you've been sleep deprived, but then after a few days, you know, you get, get those stores back and, um, probably feeling pretty good but i do see like people can develop depending again on the on that predisposition um through the use of mdma or even hallucinogens or even um amphetamine drugs anxiety issues depression and it's about recognizing what levels for you because i'm i'm not 
anti-drugs in a sense, a more harm minimization approach and using things in a way that's um, safe. And so, you know, for some people, regular use of those type of drugs would ca- can cause mental health issues. You've also got people that have, um, and this is why you have to be careful if you're thinking, okay, psychedelics might be an option for me, for my mental health condition or my, yeah, mental health condition which could include a substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder if you have a family history of a schizophrenia type disorder you have to be very careful and so um and we haven't talked about cannabis yet um but cannabis and um the psychedelic drugs hallucinogens and i would even put mdma into that category because it does you're playing a bit of roulette in terms of your brain neurochemistry. Mm. And so you would really want to avoid... So even if even if you had a, any sort of family history of schizophrenia, psychosis, mania, you would want to be definitely... Bipolar. Yeah, bipolar. You would want to be probably avoiding that as a treatment option because you can get um, drug-induced psychosis. And a lot of um, young people... Mo- the vast majority of cases of of psychosis in um, juvenile, you know, institutions. people before 25, It will it? be drug-induced. Mm. Not all, but the vast majority. From regular smoking mm. of weed um, or regular methamphetamine use, they're the most common. Do you think that, obviously there was the war on drugs, but do you think that the main reason these drugs aren't funded is because there's no real way to make money off them yeah so interesting question now we're getting to the economics of drug um trials and drug discovery so there's a couple of economic issues here there's probably less opportunity to make money but i do think that given the market there is still opportunity to make money if you came up with a therapy um option but you know, which would involve a psychology. If you came up with a practice, so at the moment, like I know medical cannabis has become a thing in Australia and now we have these clinics that pop up where you can go and get your medical cannabis and, you know, they're obviously, it's a, even though that's a money-making exercise and they're making money, but cannabis is not, like anyone can grow cannabis if they want. Well, obviously it's illegal, but I don't even know the state of the legalities of cannabis now in Victoria. Maybe you can have one plant. I don't I'm, know. I think uh, at the moment you can get a uh, medical card for it. I know, I'm pretty sure psilocybin's becoming similar in terms of medical use. Like it's, oh, it's, start, f- it's very start- far away from cannabis though. So I know about that side of things. I'm just talking about in terms of personal use. Are you allowed to oh, have a plant? As in recreationally? Yeah. Then uh, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there. so. So, but obviously I don't know your audience, whether they're Australian or you might have international audience. We know that for each country, it mm. can be very different. Well, psilocybin is actually legal in Samoa. So I found that interesting. Oh, look, I'm not telling anyone to go to Samoa. <laughs> but well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Re- so the thing is, getting back to the psilocybin is that we still are very much in the research phase of mm. knowing the true impacts. A really nice paper came out last week in a in Nature Neuroscience showing that um, psilocybin's acting through a receptor of BDNF. I don't know if you've heard of BDNF, but it's a factor um sort of molecule in the brain involved in plasticity mm-hmm. so um when when we talk about plasticity obviously be um so it can it can help change the brain basically yeah, yeah and so you know if you do a lot of exercise and and you get 
neurogenesis, BDNFs involved in that. Um, when, lion's mane's meant to help with, uh, I've heard that lion's mane can actually help with neurogenesis as well. Lion's mane's just a mushroom, but I digress. Anyway, going back. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what the active component is of that. But anyway, bottom line is this paper came out last week, which showed that um, you can get the, like psilocybin's acting on the receptor that BDNF is acting on, which makes sense because we see these, because the crazy thing about these, hallucinogenic treatments is that you might only need one or two treatments to have a profound effect and so what that what that's saying is that it's not sort of substituting so you know the idea of um ssris is that the overwhelming sort of dogma with depression is that which i think is turning on its head now was that you had this chemical imbalance so to speak so you have a loss a lack of these neurotransmitters like serotonin dopamine or adrenaline and that these SSRIs will restore that imbalance and that's why they work so that's the serotonin theory of depression now we're understanding that there's this complex interplay between um, early life experiences and um, plasticity in your brain which involves not just serotonin but also glutamate um, which is what ketamine acts on a receptor for which is approved now not a hallucinogen but is a dissociative um, so has very strong psychoactive effects and then also BDNF and so the fact that this paper came out and showed that um, psilocybin also acts through this receptor that BDNF acts on shows that we um, and causes plasticity um, in a way that means that we can probably eventually not right now but come up with drugs that potentially act through this system as opposed to that serotonergic system and you might be able to come up with a therapy a, a pharmacotherapy i mean i say this it might be 10 15 years but you can see or you might screen some libraries and come up with something that can give you the antidepressant effects of these psychedelics without necessarily the psychedelic properties if you so, could get if you could get a drug which acts just on this BDNF so receptor, so taking the drug without the hallucinogenic effects, exactly. Okay. So because some people don't want to necessarily go through that, but then the <laughs> argument is that some people. So some people will say, "Oh, it is about the psychedelic it's experience." The experience that, yeah. So this paper that came out, and there's a few papers now, would argue that potentially you can dissociate the two things. Mm. So the question is, which is still up in the air, I believe. But again, this is going a bit outside my my discrete area, but I'm very interested in it. Is that is the psychedelic experience and the plasticity induced by that an essential part of the antidepressant or treatment properties? And so I'm putting this question to you and I'm saying we don't know yet, and it's still an ongoing research question. But it's a very interesting question because then it leads down the path of, okay, so how does this therapy look? How do we roll this out? And this comes down to the economics of if you need a psychiatrist to administer this therapy and sit with you for the four to eight hours, that's going to be a very expensive therapy. I don't know if you've ever seen a psychiatrist in no. your life, but they cost hundreds of dollars, they do right? An per hour. exactly. Mm. So then, okay, if we're thinking about therapies that are going to change the lives of people, it has to be economically accessible. Charge for the session, not the hour. You're going to have to roll out something, which is either shorter. Or maybe have a nurse that's trained up in that specific mm. task because otherwise it's just going to be for rich people. It's just going to be for people that have resources yeah. that can afford to pay for that. And I'm talking like th it'll be thousands of dollars. People who are on, just say, minimum wage or under minimum wage, they're not going to be able exactly. to do that. Exactly. And, and so then there's equity issues. And so that's probably now 
Um, I can't see Medicare covering psilocybin either. No, no. Especially, and SSRIs are so cheap. Mm. So, um, but, but ketamine, so ketamine is the most recent drug. So psilocybin is still in testing, and I don't want to say one way or the other, but it's looking promising. Mm-hmm. But ketamine is, is, is approved now for treatment of depression. So you can go and get a ketamine um, treatment, uh, S-ketamine, it's a nasal spray, um, but I think it's quite expensive. But at least the idea is that I think you would only need it every few months as opposed to daily like a medication, like an SSRI. So it is very exciting, this um, new field of um, discovering the therapeutic potential of drugs that have been around for since the dawn of time, really. Um, it's very exciting that we have now as a society moved past the idea that all drugs that cause psychoactive effects have to be bad, mm. which let's face it was led by religious conservatism in the States. Um, but it's really... The devil. <laughs> it's really, um, I think it's exciting. It's an exciting time mm. to be um, in neuroscience and working in mental health because I think the possibilities are there for... Um, these conditions like substance use disorder and eating disorders um, or just even disordered eating that underlies obesity that I, I'm moving towards thinking about at least doing preclinical studies of these compounds in my lab. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the potential is there and it is exciting. But I think we also have to be um, cautious about what the media promises mm. because we're not there yet. And I think it's also going to be um, probably just like with any other treatment, only suitable to a subpopulation. But that's okay because we're moving towards this era, I would hope, of more personalised medicine where where it's not going to be the same for everyone. It's not going to be one size fits all and that's okay as well. But again, it's about resourcing and making um, equitable access for everyone. And at the moment, it's going to be a struggle with the psychedelics, but hopefully, you know, we'll come up with something but there is no I agree there's the economic um, argument for pharmaceutical companies to get into psychedelics is for the actual psychedelics that exist already reasonably low but I can tell you right now there's a lot of companies that are trying to come up with analogues that they can patent that might be better or more effective and speak to more of those ideas of you know focusing in on that say the antidepressant versus the hallucinogenic properties and so there's there's definitely R&D going on in that space and there's because there's IP there because you have to understand that drug companies need to make money and research is expensive then there's which is good because you need there to be IP an IP case there for drug companies to actually bother otherwise nothing progresses so at least there's some there is there is R&D activity but for the actual say psilocybin itself you're right. It is something that um, a typical pharmaceutical company wouldn't see an economic benefit there. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Dr. Robin Brown, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, before we go, did you want to uh, plug any social media or anything like that where someone can follow you and your work? Oh, well, um, I have a Twitter handle. If people want to follow, I tend to publish publish the work from our lab via that means and it's um robin brown lab r-o-b-y-n-b-r-o-w-n lab um and also the um addictive and compulsive eating research organization we we sometimes have webinars and things like that for people that are just interested in research in that space so it's not limited to researchers it's also interested lay people and so that is 
um, A-C-E-R-O, ACERO, we call it. We have a Twitter handle as well. Dr. Robin Brown, thank you so much for coming on. And I enjoyed your company. Thank you. No worries. Bye.